0: Jimmy, I just came back from a lovely trip along the Milky Way. I stopped off at the North Pole to spend the holiday. I called on old dear Santa Claus to see what I could see. He took me to his workshop and told his plans to me. Now Santa is a busy man. He has no time to play. He's got millions of stockings to fill on Christmas Day. You better write your letter now and mail it right away because he's getting ready, his reindeers, and his sleigh. You better watch out,
1: you better not cry. Lana Maria the Building Abundant Success Series, and we just got finished listening to lead vocalist Lala Brooks and the Crystals. Lala is an accomplished stage and screen actress, and of course she's led on hits that we've heard all our lives, like the Do-Run-Run, Then He Kissed Me, and of course Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which is just great for this time of year. Lala is also an accomplished stage and screen actress. Her latest album is called All or Nothing. This awesome interview with Lala is coming at you right now. Lala Brooks, welcome. Hi, how you doing, Sabrina? I am doing great. This is so exciting to talk to Miss Lala Brooks of the Crystals. I um, listened to your music all oh, my life. Oh, I'm a child. I'm telling you, I'm so happy it. that you did get to hear the music that we did in the 60s. Yeah, from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Didn't know it was you. Santa Claus is coming to town. I'm listening to this Christmas album and just loving it. So, generations have grown up with your music, mine included. I want you to tell our audience who you are, where you're from. Well, I
0: guess I'm Lava Brooks, and I was with the Crystals, and we were all from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. That's what Stevenson.
1: Yeah, East Coast. I'm from Jersey. I'm New Brunswick. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> That's where I'm originally from. Yes. Originally, though, the crystals uh, started in what year and what was the lineup? Were there crystals before you came along?
0: Well, what happened was well, they had just started, and mm-hmm. I was about, say, 12 and a half,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, Barbara was the lead singer. They had just done There's No Other Like My Baby, mm-hmm. and um, one of the girls, there were five of them, and one of the girls left, and... Didi Boo's mom worked in my school when I was like 12 and a half. I was in the seventh grade, and I used to go to the after-school programs that my mom made us go because she didn't want us on the street, you know, playing in the street, so she'd send me back to school, and one particular day I went back, and Mrs. Henry, which was Didi's mom, she was um, would, she would tend, attend the children there, you know, so we wouldn't get in trouble. We'd have to play, like, different games, and play music and one particular day when i went back after um, school i heard this man playing the piano followed him down the hallway in the school and i just stood in the door as a kid and i said can i sing and he said can you i said yeah you know because i was singing in church at the time i started seven at seven years old singing gospel in church and diddy's mom heard me and she came down and she said was that you with that big voice and i said yeah and she said you want to join a group? And I said, I'm looking at it like, okay. And, you know, because you're a child, you don't understand what you're saying, you know. Uh-huh. And she said, you have a beautiful voice. And so when she told me that, she I, I that's when I went right into the crystals when I was like 12 and a half. I turned 13 when I did my first tour with them, um, a James Brown tour.
1: Wow. Now, music culturally at that time, um, explain to my audience what's going on musically at the time that you know you get that offer,
0: well, you may it says what what music was playing or how the music yeah was what
1: was going on in the music scene because see you're new to this but I'm sure there's some sort of influence other than gospel going on. What's going on uh, musically? Who are you influenced by? Well, I was really when at that, that age I was
0: listening to like Brenda Lee. Like I always say, I just, I listened to Brenda Lee, which was crazy because I'm not a country singer, but I'd love to do country music. But I love, I do like country music. I was listening to Brenda Lee. I was also listening to Baby Washington. I love her today. I think she has a great voice. And, um, people like that. And, and, um, uh, Frankie Lyman at the time. He was out. He had just, they had been recording. So I was listening to music like that, not knowing that at 13, I would start off professional, in a professional, you know, doing it professionally. And, uh, wow. for those are the, the old Bobettes, because I think they came out in the 50s, like 58, 57. I was listening to the Bobettes and
1: music like that. Sounds exciting. Now you don't know, you said that you didn't know what you were saying about joining a group, but you knew you would be with comrades, you know, with your peers and whatnot. In the, in the beginnings of the Crystals, what was that like? Because I know that, um, you know, what is it? You're preteens, basically. You're, you're in school. What is that like when someone says, hey, you know, you want to join a group? Hmm. Well, that's, you know, naturally I'm a kid,
0: so it's shocking, but I knew I always could sing. You know, I didn't I didn't know that I was gonna join a professional group because it just wasn't in my head because I was so young. But I knew that I always wanted to sing from singing gospels. But to join a group it was just off the top of my head like a child when Mrs. Henry said, You wanna join a group? I was like, Yeah, okay You know, not seeking that was so many things behind it but she went and, uh, when, I, when she asked me that, I said, you have to talk to my mom. And she, came, she went by my mother's house because, as I said, we all lived in Brooklyn. And she told my mother. And my mother was like, well, she didn't know. My mother was older, so she didn't know about groups and, you know, songs like, you know, rock and roll songs because I came, well, we did was go to church. Mm-hmm. So when she did, you know, find out about the music, and Mrs. Henry was explaining to her about the group and things, my mother was concerned, and, and Mrs. Henry guaranteed her that I'd be safe, and they moved me quickly out of my school, my public school, and I went to private school right away. And um, that was a shocker, because I went to school with very wealthy, wealthy children, and it was all white, which in my regular school and the public school was mixed. Mm-hmm. And that was a culture shock, is because um, I just wasn't used to going to school with all-white children, plus they very wealthy kids, and kids that I would say they're, um, academically they were ahead of me, you know, and that was a challenge for me. And um, after that, I continued from that school to a high school. And in high school, I went to school with Patty Duke, um, Anthony Quinn's son, uh, Gregory Hines, uh, Bernadette Peters, uh, Donna Washington's sons, so I went to school where there was all professional children. The only, as the only diffi- difficult difficulty thi- things I had was keeping up with the work. So I would have my older brothers, and uh, my older brothers would help me with my homework. And because we didn't have, we weren't taught the same way the white kids, in, especially in private schools, were taught. You know, mm-hmm. they had a very good education where we had like a mediocre that. It was okay. I guess we understood it was all right, but when you go to a school where there's wealthy children and all of it was like so shocking to me. I think in a whole school, it was me and two other black girls that was in the school and it was really difficult
1: for me. It really was uh, mentally, emotionally, but I got through it. <laughs> well, yeah, it challenges you And anything. that challenges you. You can become a better person Because of that, do you think that that education helped you survive what would be uh, showbiz?
0: Oh, sure, it did, because I was around showbiz kids. And um, naturally, the the way they act and the way they speak and the way they carry themselves is much different than just normal children. So you Mm -hmm. pick up, you know, you pick up to fit in. You Mm -hmm. pick up to be competitive. You pick up just to get along with them. You know, so everything worked out in a positive way for me. And I I was the type of child being brought up by a mom that was very, very, um, you know, positive. She always gave me that backbone that you are special. Not to be better than somebody, but I never felt inferior. Never. I didn't. You know, and I think that happened from when I was a kid. So it never, it bothered me as far as I say academically, but as far as like being able to fit in. No, I could fit in very well
1: awesome I was looking at early pictures of the crystals I saw that it was a quintet then it went to a quartet when you were there what was the lineup right at the very beginning and who was in that group when you started to actually record and you know practice and record
0: Okay. When we first, when I first got into the group, it was five of us. It was five of us from the beginning. And Myrna, um, Gerard, I think her name was. I think she got pregnant and she had to leave. I took her place. So it was like five of us. It was myself, Didi Kenny Boo, Barbara Austin, Patsy Wright, and Mary Thomas. As I said, Pats, uh, Mar- Barbara Austin, she sang "There's was no Like My Baby" in Uptown, and I don't think that. They thought that I could do a lead because I was so young. So um, eventually, how I became the lead singer, Barbara, when we used to work the Apollo all the time, Barbara started asking me, because my voice was much different and bigger, and mm-hmm. she started asking me, Lolly, you want to do dance a like my baby and, and uptown? And I said, yeah, because Barbara didn't come from gospel, and I did. So mm-hmm. I could sing you know, pop songs, and I could sing rock songs, and I could sing gospel songs. She didn't have that leverage of voice. So once I started doing that, Barbara just didn't want to sing the lead
1: anymore. And
0: that's how I took the lead.
1: Well, wow. Now, where are you recording when, in your early career? Where was the recording studio? Um, it was in New
0: York with Phil. We rehearsed at um, York Street, like I think it's on 40-something Street. We'd go there. Phil had two apartments. And one apartment that he lived in, and the other one he would rehearse in. And sometimes um, Carol King was there, you know, giving us a song to do. Um, Elliot Greenwich, you know, a lot of young writers, and we used to have to go there and rehearse and find out what songs would fit us. And as that when when that happened, as I said, Barbara was doing lead at the time, and Phil was getting hummos of his songs like um, "I Love You, Eddie," "What a Nice Way to Turn Seventeen Barbara had like a child's voice, but very soft. Mm-hmm. And we were in the studio in New York. I can't remember where it was because I, I'm more familiar with Gold Star Studio in California because I was flown out there to put down to do Run Run tracks and all my other tracks with the, with the uh, Christmas album. But we recorded in, in New York and Phil, gave, we would always have to rehearse in an apartment building that was underneath his apartment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We started with Phil, you know, every. We all started with Phil. I mean, the group started with Phil's first group
1: after he left the Teddy Bears. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, I, was, I wanted to talk to you about that. You guys were the first successful group for Phil Spector. What was it like working with him? Well, you know, Phil was fine with us, you know.
0: It just got weird after he left to California. Mm-hmm. But um, he was fine. I had no problem. And maybe because I was so young and I wasn't you know, uh, uh, keying in on Phil's vibration or his aggression or things like that. But Phil was not like, you know, people make him out to be today, you know. He was nice, he was gentle, he he was very, you know, uh, direct in how he approached songs and what he wanted you to sing. I mean, even when we were recording in New York and Barbara was in the studio, sometimes we'd be sitting there like sighing, like, oh my God, Barbara, you have to do it over again because she was in a little booth. So he was a driller, but not a gorilla <laughs> at the <laughs> time. He wasn't really bad. I think it just happened when he went to California, and maybe he changed. I don't know. But he still didn't change with me when I was thrown out there at 15. And as I said, maybe because I was so young, I didn't see what other people had seen.
1: With the road. You mentioned the Theater, which is now the world-famous uh, landmark uh, what is it like for a teenager to be on the road? You're recording, you are a successful group, um, even before you get to be a lead singer, but what was it like to go to a place like the Apollo or any place in, in, the, in the north? Because I know the north is a total different culture, and we'll get to the south a little later. Right. Well, it was, you know, the Apollo was like the epitome of, you know, the best place
0: to work and we were so young it was an honor to work for the Apollo but the problem was when I was in the group we did five shows at the Apollo and Mm -hmm. it started about 11, 11.30 up until like 12 at night Mm -hmm. so we did five shows and um, that was difficult because, you know, I was a child but I could do it, you know, I mean, I got through it because, you know, being a kid you have that energy but what happened at the end of the day when we do the five shows they, uh someone, I don't know who did it or what happened, they reported to the Provincial of crew to Children, and they came after me and my mom. Wow. And because you're not supposed in those days, you weren't supposed to do five shows, you were allowed to do three, but not five. So when it got out that this young girl, because I was a baby in the group, was doing these five shows, they came after us. And uh, when we worked the Apollo program, um, I think it's Bob Shiffman, the owner, had to, because at that time we were famous, and we had Bears Other, no like My Baby in Uptown, and we was established, a very established group. He didn't want to take us off the show, so what they did was they, um, instead of us going on at a certain time, because the prevention and cruelty for children used to come about 2 o'clock just to check, because we'd be at the Apollo for a week. Just to check if I was on stage over five shows, so they put me in places where they wouldn't be there. So if I was supposed to do a show at eleven, they put it at maybe say four. So we right. they switch spots with us on different with different groups. So the person that's coming down the check would automatically not be there would have gone home.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and they came to my mom and said that in those days they was said that they would lock my mother up is because of wow. to a child. So that was a problem for me. And um, it got so bad because I became the lead singer, even, as I said, not even doing a recording as yet. I was the lead singer soon as Barbara, soon as, practically soon as I got in the group mm-hmm. at that young age, 13. And then we have to wait clubs in New York called the Uptown, was the Uptown Theater Club we used to play. That was a problem, so... What they did was crazy. We had a, a manager who was a lawyer named Linda Lubar. And me, I didn't know what I was doing. He wanted us to play clubs because they was asking for the group so much. And by me being the lead singer, the group was doing better when it came to sound. And my voice was, you know, phenomenal to be a young girl. They couldn't, they could not have me there. So they forged my name on his daughter's, um, my fingerprints under his daughter's name, Linda Lubar. And that was shocking to me after mm-hmm. I thought about it because I remember Patsy Rice, who was my guardian, and she was mm-hmm. one of the mothers that traveled all over, all over the United States with us. When we went to Europe, she didn't travel with us because we had people waiting for us in Europe on the side of the ocean, ready to be with us. But I remember her taking me as a kid into this place and me put my fingerprints on this ink and wondering, what did I do? or Why are they doing that? Nobody said anything. And then when we played the clubs, I know they would keep telling me, Lala, remember your name is Linda Lubar. And I remember going into the clubs when we're getting to put, you know, put our bags down and our dresses. And before we get in there we're getting out of the car because we had a driver, they kept saying, now remember Linda Lubar. If anybody asks you your name, it's Linda Lubar. <laughs> so I'd have to always remember my name was Linda Luva. if anybody came up and wanted to see my ID. And my ID was in her name with my, with um my fingerprints. Which wow. was crazy.
1: All that just to perform, wow. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I was saying, after I thought about it when I got old, I said, my goodness, Linda Luva could have killed somebody and I would have been in jail. <laughs> yeah, you would. <laughs>
1: You would have, but you know it makes for a great it makes for a great story, man. I mean, really. I mean, but you were living it, actually living it, you know. And what's so uh, crazy, you
0: know, Sabrina, is that Linda Lubar was white and she was Jewish.
1: If <laughs> 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 that ain't crazy, <laughs> that is that's amazing. It, I mean, it, it sounds exciting, though. Um, you, can you tell us some of the stuff that happened? I know that the Apollo audiences are a pretty rough audience. For, oh, they're difficult. If, if you're not good,
0: I mean, thank God I had the biggest voice for a kid and a teenager because if you weren't good, they would just boo you, you know, or sit there like, oh, my God, you know, like, you know, you're waiting for the eggs to come or some bottles to come on stage. But you had to be very good. You had to be very good. They weren't stupid. I mean, a lot of them came from funk, rock, gospel, you know, because it was mostly black audience. If you saw a white person there, it was like, even us as artists, we had to hold back on stage performing without pointing the mountain to each other, like saying, oh, Didi, there's a white person in the middle, there's a white person on the side." because white people did not go to the Apollo. Later on, we started seeing a few in the center, but they were tourists, that right and probably heard about the Apollo and how famous it was, and maybe from Germany and, you know, England, and those are the people that used to come. But the Apollo was very hardball, very hardball, and you had to be very good in order to be able to work there as an artist, you know. So we were fortunate. I mean, we started young, and
1: and we were very fortunate, you know. That sounds exciting. Um, Did you tour the other because i know there's the uptown the regal the royal the fox uh, you know they're considered many of them um uh, historical landmarks many of the african-american theaters they weren't at that time they were you know of course the apollo is well known but now they're historical landmarks were you able to play any of the other ones like the howard theater or
0: played uh, all of those.
1: those was called like chicken
0: chicken circuit i think it was called, we played the Apollo for one week, then we'd go to Baltimore, the Biltmore Theater for one week, then we'd go to the Howard Theater, Washington for one week, then we go to the Regal Theater, the Uptown Theater in Philadelphia. So we did the whole uh, chitlin circuit, you know, and that's what we did. Every time we booked the Apollo, we automatically knew. Like if we was on the, on the, in the Apollo with, like, Patti LaBelle and the Blue Bells at the time and or Chuck Jackson, Benny King, um, Sam Cooke, uh, Lou Ross, not Lou Ross, um, what is his name? I can't think if he passed away, too. He made Doctor of the Bay, sitting on the Doctor Bay. Oh, you're talking about Otis Redding. Otis Redding, we played the Apollo with. And then Brooke Benton, you know, um, uh, um, what is her name, too? Uh, uh, she played a lot with Brooke Benton. Her name is Brown. Her last name was Brown. Very uh-huh. short lady. Feisty, but... next scene. Not 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 Maxine Brown. I forgot her name. I'll think about it in a minute.
1: What's your song? Um,
0: so we played with Brooke Benton, mm-hmm. and then we'd all go to the the Howard Theater, and we'd do a whole week there with the same group. Whatever, whenever we worked the Apollo, which we did very, we worked the Apollo a lot. I think maybe because we were New Yorkers and from mm-hmm. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and we were good. And so whoever was on the show with us, those are the people that would go to the next gig where we spent spend a week with them, whether it was The Temptations, whether it was, you know, like I say, um, The Womack Brothers, Bobby's, you know, Bobby Womack. you know, Ruth Brown? Ruth was Brown.
1: Ruth. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, Ruth, she was a sweetheart. We worked with Ruth Brown because she used to do a duet with, um, with Benton. Mm-hmm. And uh, we. so we always worked with all the artists. We always travel with the artists in the Chislin circuit that we finished the Apollo and then we'd go to those other theaters.
1: Interesting. Now, in terms of the touring, I know you did some Dick Clark tours, but how integrated were other tours? Um, did you travel with the Dovells? Did you travel with um, Fabian? Did you travel with um, you know any of the other artists out there? Was it a, a mixed group of people when you first started touring? Oh yeah, sometimes we do. It was considered as the black tours, you know. They would call it the black tours because
0: naturally there's not a white person on there. And then we toured a lot with the, the um, with the black and white tours, and that's because I think the crystals had a, a pop, you know, sound that wasn't like uh, Motown. It wasn't funk. It wasn't um, you know um, that heavy sound. It sort of like fit any place. Uh-huh. And then when I became the lead singer, and I had a gospel kind of voice naturally we would fit in, in white tours or black tours that's how good the group was as far as that's how fortunate we were not to be you know pigeonholed and say okay they're more of a, a, they sing more r&b we were in the middle and that was good for us because we can do the white tours with the Dovells, um johnny fender who was black but um uh, bobby Rydell bobby vinton uh, Brian Hiram, oh, Gene Pitney, Fabian, oh, um, Dion, Dion the Belmont, all of those people we used to work with. And that's how we did, and we worked with Dick Clark. Dick Clark would hire us all the time to do his shows. You know, in fact, was crazy is because Dick Clark was like, my voice at the time, I had such a strong voice and a high voice, it could go high, low, whatever. Dick Rock used to use me for everything. Sometimes uh, one of the Dixie Cups would be sick. One of the um, I remember um, uh, Paul, uh, Paula and Paula and Paula. Mm-hmm. They made I yeah. forgot um, what song they made. Um, hey hey Paul, that mm-hmm. kind of song. Right. I want to marry you. Well, you know they, she had a high voice and she got sick and. Dick Rock came to me and said, Lala, um, Paul, uh, Paul is sick. Now, Paul was a tall white guy, and naturally she was a white girl, and they sang that song, Hey, Hey, Paul,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, hey, Paul or whatever it was, and um, she'd answer him. So on the record, it was a big record, and so when she got sick, Dick, King, Dick Rock came to me and said, Lala, this is going to be crazy, but um, Paul is sick, and she, you know, the song is a hit, could you do it? And I say, yeah, I can do it. And when I walked out in the audience, it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was this tall white guy? And he's saying to me, "Hey, hey, Paul, I want to marry you." Hey, hey, Paul. Whatever it was, my voice—I had to sing that, and everybody was the audience was laughing, but in a in a positive way is because right. my voice was strong, and I'm coming out with this. He's looking at me and saying, "Hey, Paula," and they know that I'm not Paula. And I'm this black girl that he's talking to. So it was crazy. So Dick (laughs) Clark, fill me in in everything. And I would sing the song. I would sing it like like she did it, but naturally, I'm a black woman, so I'm going to put a spin on it. Right. You know, in in a way, in a pop, in a funk way. And they was like, oh, my God, I don't believe this. So (laughs) it was crazy. But that's what he used to do. And he used to say, boy, I can always count on you. So I used to fill in for the people that were sick. You know? Nice. Not that I wanted to and I didn't want them mm-hmm. to be sick, but I had that kind of voice, you know. And then one of the uh what is it, the girl that think, go into the chapel and we're gonna get married I feel in for them when, when the sick barber was sick. So I knew how to change the voice and uh as I said, Dick Rock used to use me for everything. I was like the all around girl that could sing anybody's song. That's you know? beautiful. That's but beautiful.
1: Yeah, I was wondering in are being able to be as versatile as, and, 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 you know, you're, we're, we're in almost 2016, but you started and got to see many people at the beginnings of their careers who would have a particular niche and still have a particular niche today. You mentioned Otis Redding and you mentioned Bobby Rydell. You mentioned people who would go on for that time to be um the superstars of the day what were some of the uh people like the Sam Cooks and the Bobby Rydell, people who would really blow up maybe a few years later yeah I, I even heard that uh you uh had the Supremes open for you all what was that like to see an early Diana Ross and a Mary Wilson and you know what was that that whole scene like
0: well, we were a dick club with, with Diana Ross and the Supremes. And their record wasn't... When we got on tour with them, we were hotter than them. Because wow. we, had, we had come out before Diana Ross and the Supremes. And we had hit records before them, just like Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. They had hit records before the Supremes. The pre- mm-hmm. Supremes started getting a hit record when we were on tour. When, when um, Barry Gordy released their, their records, it shot up there when we were on tour. and the duh, duh, Believe me... Diana Ross took advantage of that. It was like, oh my God, please shut up! You know, <laughs> you know, we're girls, we're teenagers, and we don't want to hear that because you know you you're sort of competitive, just like a sport. But um, they blew up on tours that we when the records when the record was being played, and Barry Gordy naturally was re- uh, releasing one behind the other. But when we first did the tours with Dick Clark, we were uh, we went on stage after the Supremes because we were bigger. But then before the tour was over. They went on before us. I mean, you know, it's vice versa. We went on, um, yeah, yeah, they went on before us. No, after us. Yeah, after us is because they had become, their, their record was going so quickly, mm-hmm. you know, in that that particular time. But they didn't have a hit record for a long time. And when they did, they did. You know, they everything was going, everything they put out was like, boom, behind each other, you know, all, all hit. But as I said when we started the tour, they were the records were just being released and every time that it kept going up on billboard charts, we had to look at Donald Ross run on the bus and say, Oh, it's number eighty two and the next thing you know it's number thirty two. Next thing you know it's number one and it goes, Oh my god, you know. So they did they, they killed it when it came
1: to the success of the um, recordings as we were on tour. Being one of the early, um, members of the early girl group, not necessarily the first, but um, when, in terms of, you know, the whole Phil Spector-Wallace sound, the Crystals were really the first big, successful group. In terms of uh, branding and style and business, that's not something that's even the first part. Of, of what you all are thinking of at this time. To see a, um, like a Sam Cooke, who was ahead of his time. Um, Otis Redding and others. Um, and they blew up, and, and in different ways. The record industry in the beginnings were owned by different people. When, when you talk about Motown, that's a whole different ball game. You're talking about African American business. Um, I interviewed someone, won't tell you who, and their group was approached by Barry Gordy. And uh he was saying, oh, this this young good looking African American came to us and said that he wanted to produce us and we were looking at him like, Oh, brother, what does this guy think he's doing? And they really just blew him off, basically told him where to go. He really was nice, came in, said he loved their sound and wanted to produce them. He only had one jazz group who would come up, you know, become a pop group. Did you ever think an African-American label or group could ever get that big when you first started? Or did you even think that about business?
0: Well, we didn't think too much. I don't think I thought too much about business because we were mm. so young, especially me. I was so young. I didn't think about that. My mind was, let me just get on stage and just do, you know, what I was comfortable to, in doing. But as far as the business aspect, aspect I didn't understand it at that time. Mm-hmm. I understood it now, you know, as I said, when I got older. Mm-hmm. But as far as, like, I would have never thought that Barry Gordy, Motown, would blow up like it did. Mm-hmm. We worked with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, the Marvelettes, a lot, you know, before the Supremes hit it big with their records. But we never thought about that, but... Team, um, Phil Spector and Barry Gordy, there was a competition together. It's like the white guy who has the wall of sound and the black guy who has the funk sound, you know. So even down the line, when Phil started messing up with the crystals, which he shouldn't have mm-hmm. done, because we started mm-hmm. Phil, he should have been very loyal, which he ended up not being loyal, Barry Gordy approached us and asked us, did we want to go on his label? And we were in the car driving when... The Crystals were discussing it, and by me being young, I couldn't have an opinion or didn't stress my opinion because I wasn't thinking I was too young to be, to, to be in a conversation with them. But I heard with Judy and all of them speaking and saying, no, we're not going to go to Barry Gordy, and even though Phil is acting up with us, it's because he had too many girl groups. He had the Belveless, the Marveless, Martha Reason of Endelas and Supremes, and we felt that when Barry Gordy approached us, we would be lost. And in fact, about a few years ago, I played, um, the, um, B.B. Kings, and Barry Gordy came there, and he's, uh, we were performing some Motown stuff, the Marvel uh, things. And he came in the dressing room, and I really don't know him that well because I was a kid. And you know, now that I'm grown, he came in there like, hey, baby, you know what? I'm like, what? And then he says, Lala, he says, um, the song that you sang on s- stage was something that I wrote. I think it was by the co- Common or whatever it was. And I said, really? Mm-hmm. He said, you did the heck out of it. I said, oh, thank you. And then he said, you know, years ago, he said, we wanted to sign you guys, and you guys didn't sign with us. I said, yeah, you know, Barry. I said, I did hear that when I was very young in a car, and I didn't go into detail in telling him why, but we didn't because it was just so many girl groups, and we knew that we were established already, and we may have gotten lost. So we did refuse (laughs) to Barry Gordy, too, but ours was for a different reason because there was too many women that he had to look after. We figured that we would just fall to the wayside. It was too much for him to handle.
1: Now, that's the reason I ask you that, because you said that Phil wasn't loyal and the Crystals were an established group. You had charters before the Duran Run and others. And, uh, you know, what... What happened to that loyalty? Why did that happen? And, and was it all about money? Was it just getting another uh, African-American uh, a woman group? What, what happened? Well, the crystals, are, as I was
0: young, there were certain things I didn't know in detail, but I can hear it as a kid, you know, like when you listen to your mother's conversation. I remember that when Barbara was doing the lead, and as I said, we started Phil here. Phil wanted to go and move the company to California. We didn't think anything about it. We figured, okay, you moved to California. It doesn't matter. We'll be able to record for you anyway, because you're thinking of him being loyal, and you're making him a producer with some... Black girls in New York, and you've done something for him. He's gonna look out, look out for you. So when he went to California, uh we started. We needed a record out again to keep us going because you had to put a record out in a certain period of time. So we were being managed at that time by Joe Scandori, who who had been managing Don Rickles for forty five years. So Joe Scandori was a big guy, kind of Mafioso, whatever you call him, and. Um, he was telling us, Phil, I'm asking Phil to put a record out on you guys now that you're he's going to California, but you still have a contract with him for him to record you guys. And we wasn't thinking anything, and the pressure kept on Phil, on Phil, and um, Phil just didn't, I don't know whether he wasn't listening, or he got to California, and, and um, his head got big, I don't know where he was coming from, but he ended up putting Darlene Love under the crystal name on, he's a rebel, and... We didn't know anything about it. We didn't know who Darlene was. We know she was older than us. It's because she's about six and a half years older than me at that particular time. And that makes a difference when you're younger. And um uh next thing you know, we're going on a gig. We had just finished, uh I think we had finished either Hawaii or uh Bermuda. And we're going on a gig. We're in a car. We hear, he's a rebel and it never, never be any good. We hear this song and the man says, the crystal's number one. We were like, who's... Who, we're here. Where did, where did that come from? So naturally, we panicked. We got on the phone with our manager. He got in touch with Phil, which was probably very difficult. I couldn't know the conversation, and um, he was pressuring him. And Phil had to to, to uh, put her also probably at the same time on. He sure the boy I love. You know, like you you wouldn't make one recording and you do another one. You probably had it sitting in a can, mm-hmm. and he released that. Now we're confused. We don't know what the hell to do Is because Barbara has such a light voice. I had the power, but I'm still young, and but I did lead on stage, so I didn't have that fear. I was a go-getter and a strong, strong person as an individual. So we went. We had to get the record quickly. Um, Joe Scandori got it for us We had to go to a studio In New York And put it on Like a dinky recording Record player And we had to keep our ears There Ears on the music And the lyrics and learn the song, and I learned it, and I started doing it on tours, I started doing it on shows, we had no choice, it's because it was what, number one, and then he sure the boy I love didn't go as big, but I had to do that too, that was difficult to do, Is because Jarlene Love had a southern voice, she came from Texas, just migrated to California, so she had that, I always dreamed the boy I love would come along, and he'd be tall and handsome, and I said, what? I'm from Brooklyn. I have more of a Brooklyn accent, you know. So I had to, I never did it like that on stage, but I would just say, I always dreamed the boy I love would come along. I try to make it a little bit light to fit. So we did that. He's a rebel and he showed the boy I love only because we had no choice to do that. And, um, uh, then next thing you know, I was, I was about, say, when, when, when I'll go back, when, when Joe was pressing Phil to do that. I remember as a child, about 14, 15 years old, Joe Scandori telling me that he's pushing Phil. We need a record out. The crystals need a record out. And I remember standing in in Joe Scandori's office and him telling me, looking at this guy named Jim, big bouncer guy, telling me, telling Jim to tell Lala what you just did to Phil. So they were trying to push him body-wise. You know, and uh, anything else that they could do, you know. But Phil wasn't budging, and eventually, whatever happened, he heard my voice, and then I was the beat, I became I flew out to California. He only flew me out there to California to put down uh, to do Run Run. Then he kissed me and all the Christmas albums, and then the other ones, the Little Boy, Girls, Girls Can Tell. What a nice way to turn. No, 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 um, um, Heartbreaker and all of those other songs. But it hurt the Crystals because we're doing this song. And then Larry Decay was the biggest dis- disc jockey ever. Mm-hmm. He says, tells the truth that the Crystals never did the song. It's a lady named Darlene Love. And as I said, we didn't know her. I'm the one that knew Darlene and learned to see the blossoms when I was flown out to California. And it was, it was horrible. But, my voice was so good, by the grace of God, and could fit. So nobody, nobody could tell on tour. It's because I knew how to sing strong because I had that strong voice automatically. And it's only when Merida Kay said that the Crystals didn't do that song, then the problem started. And um, and then it got better after Phil flew me out and the, the Crystals came back on track when I put... The Do Run Run, Then He Kissed Me, and all the Christmas album is because now they hear the original girl that's with the group, and we got from uh, underneath that, that storm.